Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That's Jesus' disciples. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. We're going to think about the Holy Spirit. We've, we did fairly recently in Northampton a series on the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the disciples of Jesus uh, walking around the hills and towns of Israel with the physical Jesus. He's teaching them, he's comforting them, he's commanding them, he's rebuking him, rebuking them. He's there. Then in the Acts of the Apostles, and then uh, onwards, right up to the present day, Christians still walk with Jesus. Uh, but the physical Jesus has ascended, and the Spirit has descended. Jesus lives with you and in you by his Spirit. You're filled with his Spirit. How does that work? Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we read, uh, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 12, the crowd gathered amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Well, that's our question this evening. And I think it's important for everybody here in any church gathering. There's at least three categories of people. Some of you are not Christians and uh, you're not sure what you think about Christianity and you're here for whatever reason. Maybe you're thinking it all through, maybe you're, you're challenged by it, you're just interested in it. For you, it's really important for you to know that Christianity is living and vital. It is alive. It's not simply an ethical system or a set of doctrines. It's not less than that, but it is a lot, lot more than that. And this whole idea of being filled with the Spirit is all to do with the aliveness of Christianity. There's a real experience of the living God. Uh, some of you are new believers. You're recently converted. You've come to Christ. You're eager to learn more. Uh, and one thing you'll very quickly discover is that this whole area is a place where there's a lot of controversy and a lot of confusion and a lot of error. It won't be long before somebody says to you, oh, you become a Christian. Do you go to a Holy Spirit church? And you go, I think so. Uh, are you filled with the Spirit? I think so. Um, 
and, and it's important for you to, to, to know what to do with these things and how to answer them. What do, what do you understand by all that? And then there will be some of you who have been Christians a long time, and perhaps um, you feel very confident in your understanding of these things. You're pretty clear what, what, you, what you understand the Word says. Um, and yet you know that you aren't as far along as you should be. Um, you're not growing as you ought to be. And whatever it means to be filled with the Spirit, you know that you're not. So it's a subject for all of us. I mean, that's just three categories. There'll be all kinds of different people at different stages in our Christian walk. Um, but we need to be, be, be understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So three questions this evening. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And what should we therefore do in the light of all that? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What do we do? So first, who is the Holy Spirit? Note, not what is the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not an it, but a he. He's a person. In fact, he's the third person of the Trinity. The Bible teaches us that there is one God who exists in three persons. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is God. There is one God, not three gods. But he exists in three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are three, but one. If I keep saying it, you'll get it. But you don't. Do you? <laughs> because it's confusing? Yes, it is to us. I remember having a Jehovah's Witness knock on the door, and we ended up talking about the Trinity, which I didn't want to. But he ended, we end up there, and, um, and he objected to all this. And he quoted a verse in the Bible where it says, God is not the author of confusion. Therefore, the Trinity, it's confusing, so it can't be true. Well, that's not good reasoning. That verse is not about the Trinity. It's about something else altogether. Um, but the truth is, isn't it? A lot of things are confusing to our minds. Rocket science is very confusing, unless you're a rocket scientist. Um, a, a lot of things in the Bible are confusing, but gradually they become clearer as you learn more. Uh, being confusing doesn't mean they're not true. God isn't confused about the Trinity. Um, I think the Trinity will always be somewhat opaque to us. We exist as one person at a time. How can we possibly imagine what it's like to be God? He is different. We can't comprehend what it's like. The Bible reveals God is three in one. It doesn't explain it. It says that's the way it is. Um, the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Godhead. He is God. Jesus told his disciples, John 16, verse 7, that when he, God the Son, returns to God the Father, he would send to us God the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? More time on this. And this is where a lot of error and confusion comes in. What does the Spirit do? There's many things we could say from all over the Bible. But we'll stick to what Luke is telling us here in particular. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's risen again and he has not yet ascended, but he's been teaching them. And he says to them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's going to give them power. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. At, in, at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, it also describes the ascension of Jesus, and it says these verse, words in chapter, verse 48, you, says Jesus, are witnesses of these things, 
I'm going to send to you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus, he's going to send them out into the world to tell people about him, and it's a hostile world. And Jesus says, right, start in Jerusalem. Start right here, the epicenter of anti-Jesus feeling in the world. Start there, says Jesus, where my name is most hated. Start in the place where I was killed. Start there. How are they going to do it? This weak, yes, cowardly bunch of Jewish peasants. How are they even going to begin to do what Jesus is commanding? They're going to need power. And Jesus says, wait until I clothe you with power. Now the question is, how does this work? What form does this power take? Uh, We've seen, we read it from Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and how the Spirit was manifest in a physical way on that first day. God did it in this dramatic, unmissable way. Sound of a violent wind, the tongues of fire resting on each of them. And we, we see there God is communicating something to the disciples and to us that God himself was coming in power and indwelling them. But how does this power come exactly? When, when they're filled with power, what is it like? Is it like when I was a kid on the TV was a cartoon called Popeye the Sailor Man? And Popeye was a, would eat spinach and he'd have a can of spinach and he'd squeeze it like that and it would in the cartoon, it would kind of pop out the can into his mouth, and suddenly his muscles would bulge, and he'd become all full of power. You're more modern, many of you, you're into Spider-Man, and his weak Peter Parker, and he's bitten by a radioactive spider, and suddenly he becomes powerful, muscular, strong. How does it work? When the Holy Spirit comes, are the disciples suddenly going to feel fearless and powerful and invincible? No, it's not how it works. Jesus told us how the Spirit would work in us. Remember what he said in John 16. I mean, most of the teaching we have from Jesus on the Holy Spirit is in uh, those, the discourse in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. They were about to have the most appalling blow to their confidence, weren't they? Jesus, their master, was about to be arrested and, and crucified before their eyes. And what does Jesus do? He said, I'm going to teach you about the Holy Spirit. And they get all this, this teaching about the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, verse 12, uh, we read this. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. See, the Holy Spirit deals in truth. Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. Uh, He works with truth. And as as Jesus says, he's going to make truth about me known to you. So he's a teacher. Yes, but more than a teacher. He doesn't simply inform you of facts. What the Holy Spirit does is make the truth shine. The Holy Spirit takes truth and he brings it home to you. This is how he empowers the disciples. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and indwells the disciples and they're transformed. And they go running out 
into the street, praising God. And we're told what they're saying um, in chapter 2, verse 11 of Acts that we read earlier on. The, the, the crowd are all listening, and they say, we hear these people declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Uh, the, 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 word, the Greek word, therefore, the wonders of God, is, is, is megaleia, which literally is the mega deeds of God. What are the mega deeds of God? Well, there is acts of salvation. They're proclaiming the gospel with great boldness. Now, whatever has happened to these people, did the Spirit come down to them with new information? Did, did, he, did the Spirit come and say, look at you all lot sitting up in this room. Didn't you know Jesus has risen again? He's alive and he's ascended into heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. Didn't you know? Of course they knew. That Jesus had been teaching them for 40 days after his resurrection. And before that, of course, he'd been with them three years. They had masses of information. The Spirit didn't bring them anything they didn't know, but he brought it home to their hearts. The truth was suddenly floodlit to them. It overpowered all their fears and all their worries. They were, they were just transformed. They were sitting there thinking, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And this, you see, is still the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How does the Spirit empower Christians? How does he produce calm Christians, obedient Christians, joyful Christians, courageous Christians, Christians with poise? And, and they, they stand tall and stand firm. He takes the things of Jesus and he makes them known to you. As Jesus said, John 16, verse 14, he, may, I make, he will make manifest to you me. He'll glorify me to you. The work of the Spirit is to teach you and make Jesus known to you, to manifest Christ to your heart, to give him imminence. Uh, J.I. Packer, the, the theologian, has a wonderful illustration of this in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, so I can recommend to you. He tells how on this occasion he was going to a cathedral where he was due to give a talk that evening on the Holy Spirit. And he was a bit um, frustrated because he felt he just hadn't really nailed it. And he's on the way to give this talk. And um, as he came around the corner, now he'd never been to this cathedral at night before. He'd only ever been visited, visited it in the day. Um, and he came around the corner and there it was. Uh, and he'd never seen it look so stunning. It was floodlit all around. And there it looked so, all the angles and the carvings were so sharp and glorious. He just took his breath away. And he, suddenly, he said, I suddenly, that's it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He floodlights Jesus to you. So you just see the glory of who he is. But he also realized as, as, he, as he went into the cathedral thinking about this, he realized what he hadn't thought. When he came around the corner, he didn't say, wow, look at those amazing floodlights. He didn't even think about the floodlights. Their job was to say, look at that. Look at that cathedral. And he, and he realized, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He floodlights Jesus to your heart. He doesn't draw attention to himself. And I just, just say this in passing. When, when you do come across churches that, that talk about the Holy Spirit all the time, they are probably less spirit-filled than they think they are. Because the ministry of the Spirit is to magnify Jesus. And a, a Spirit-filled church is a Christ-filled church. They just are nuts about Jesus. They just can't get enough of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit there in that is done, has done his job in that church. When you look at what uh, Peter preached here in Acts 2, 
The Holy Spirit came. We didn't read on, but what happened was that the crowd had gathered and asked, what is all this about? And, Jesus, and Peter, he got up and he explained. He said, what you're seeing here is the coming of the Holy Spirit, as prophesied by Joel in the Old Testament. He explains that. He answers their question. But then very quickly, he says, right, let's not talk about that, though. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he preaches Christ to them. And 3,000 are converted that day. That, this is the work of the Spirit to get you looking at Christ. Now, uh, we need this. We need this all the time. We need the Spirit. As we said at the beginning, we don't walk with the physical Jesus uh, with, like the disciples did. And so often he doesn't seem present and real and warm to our hearts. The Spirit takes the truth about Jesus and, and makes him feel imminent and tangible and pressing. He gives, have you ever heard the expression object permanence? I, I have a, a daughter with her own daughter now, a grand, grandchild, another one on the way. So I'm always hearing about baby, how they grow up and things like this. Object permanence. You can have a lot of, she's one and a half years old, our granddaughter. And you can, if you take her, her favorite toy and hold it before her and then whip it behind your back, she looks at you, where's it gone? <laughs> how did you do that? And, she, and her eyes are wide, and then he suddenly, bring it back. And she's, oh, you're a magician. These are the dark arts. How do you do this magic? And, uh, and all I'm doing is taking advantage of her young mind. Because at that, at that, an older child knows where the toy has gone, obviously. Um, it's called object permanence. This is the ability to know that a hidden object still exists, even when you can't see it. Now, it's an ability we grow into. Now, spiritually, we're like this. On a Sunday, you may see the risen Lord. The truth is so real to you. Christ is so real. But by Monday, or even on the way home from church, it's like he's gone. It's like he's vanished. The work of the Spirit is to make the truth real to you, to make Jesus real to you, to give you that object permanence regarding Jesus. Listen to how the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus in chapter 3. He says, this is Ephesus chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is he saying? You, you know that God, Jesus loves you, but you don't know it. You, you don't know it. If you did, you'd live very differently, he's saying. You know, but you don't know. And, and some of us know a great deal of theology and truth. And we know our Bible really well and we understand so much, but our lives are not changed. And we're still full of fears and worries and sinful behaviors and sinful attitudes. The truth hasn't come home to us. We know, but we don't know. And the work of the Spirit is to magnify to the truth to us, to bring Jesus near and we need him to do this continually. More and more, the New Testament calls this being filled with the Spirit, being a Spirit-filled Christian. 
Now, confusion about this springs up uh, due to the way the New Testament uses that phrase, filled with the Spirit. Uh, even in the book of Acts, it is used in different ways at different times. What are, I just want to flick through some of the ways it's used, just to give you the idea. So we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. We turn over the page in chapter 4, and the apostle Peter and, and John, they had to appear before a a court, uh, they're on trial of sorts, and in verse 8, Peter begins to speak, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, dot, dot, dot. Then over the page in, chapter, in verse 31 of the same chapter, they have a prayer meeting following this, um, this occasion, and uh, it's an amazing prayer meeting, and it says at the end, after they prayed, verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. But now go over to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we read about um, a bit of a crisis in the church to do with food distribution. It was potentially going to be a split in the church because some people felt we're not getting our fair share, and it was trouble. And in verse, chapter 6, verse 3, Peter says to, to all the gathered church, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Verse 5, the proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, dot, dot, dot. Here's another one. Keep going a little bit more. Acts chapter 9 and verse 17. And here we read about the conversion of the apostle Paul. He was called Saul at first. And uh, in chapter 9, verse 17... It says this, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll give you one more. Chapter 13. This is on a missionary journey. They undergo a great deal of trouble and persecution. Uh, the Apostle Paul and his, and his team uh, and they end up getting flung out of town. At the end of chapter 13, verse uh, 52, the disciples uh, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit following this intense persecution. Okay, these verses are not always saying the same thing, meaning the same thing, when they say the same phrase. They say filled with the Spirit. What are they meaning? Um, sometimes... Luke, when he uses this phrase, is talking about conversion. Acts 9, verse 17, when Paul became a Christian, he says he was filled with the Spirit. When you become a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit. He comes upon you. He indwells you. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9, he talks about you are all filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 1, I'll read that one. I'll read everything. Lots of turning around in our Bibles. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, uh, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. As a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit. At conversion, the Holy Spirit indwells you. But some of these verses in Acts are talking about something else. Look at chapter 4, verse 31, that amazing prayer meeting when the building was shaken. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. 
what's going on here? It's not their conversion, is it? They're already Christians. Definitely. This is an extraordinary thing. And we see this several times in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes on his people in an extraordinary way. The church history is also full of accounts of occasions when God he drew close to his servants in an extraordinary way. It seems to be at moments when they are preparing to witness or do some great deed of ministry or are facing some severe trial. They're about to put their lives on the line or they're about to attempt something great for God. They've experienced this extraordinary witness of the Holy Spirit, the truth of who Jesus is, who they are in Christ. They're standing with Christ. They're children of God. This truth would come home to their hearts powerfully. That's what happened at Pentecost. It's extraordinary filling with the Holy Spirit. But there is also a third use of this phrase. Look again at Acts 6, where he says they had this problem about food and who's going to make sure it's all distributed fairly. And, and it says in verse 3, Brothers and sisters, choose, some, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, what are they saying? Peter is not saying, make sure you choose someone who's converted. Make sure you choose a Christian. They're all Christians. This is the church gathered. So he doesn't mean that. Nor is he saying, make sure you pick people who have had this extraordinary experience of the Holy Spirit. You know, find someone who's present at that amazing prayer meeting when the building shook. Now he's not saying that. He's saying a third thing here. He is he is using the phrase filled with the Spirit here to mean spiritual maturity. Peter is saying pick seven men and make sure they're mature Christians. Pick, make sure they are people who have been growing in the Lord. They know the truth deeply. They live in it because the Spirit has been at work and doing a work in their lives. They are filled with the Spirit, filled with the truth. That brings us to, okay, what, what do you do? Okay, we've talked about who the Holy Spirit is. Now we've talked about what does he do? He empowers you with truth. He, this, he brings the truth home to your hearts. And this is how Christians grow. This is how you put sin to death and grow in the graces of Christ. As the truth of, of Christ and your standing in Christ comes home to you. Now we see there's something you must do. The Bible commands you as a Christian to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul said, uh, we just read in Ephesians chapter 1, where, where Paul says to these Christians, you're Christians, and so you're filled with the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. But then later, in the same letter, he says this, chapter 5 and verse 18, he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You think, what do you, what do you mean, Paul? You're confusing me. You said we are filled with the Spirit. And now you're saying, be filled with the Spirit. What is Paul doing? He's talking now about growing in maturity. Yes, you're converted, but you need to be growing. Be filled with the Spirit. And he's not talking about an Acts 4 extraordinary experience. A lot of the confusion, I just say this as we go, that comes with talking about the Holy Spirit is a confusing of these different things. Be filled with the Spirit doesn't always mean that extraordinary blessing that in God's wisdom he gives when he deems you need it. But here he is commanding something. You do need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be growing as a Christian. 
The Christian life is a spirit-filled life. When you become a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit, but that's just the beginning. You are, going to, you, you are to go on being filled with Him. Now, what does that mean? What you have to remember all the time is that you're in a relationship. Christianity is a relationship. It's not all about accumulating knowledge and mastering skills. You're in a relationship. You must be filled with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He's not a liquid that you've got to pour in. He's not a, like electricity you've got to plug in. No, he's a person. The Spirit of Christ. A person has come into your life. How do you get filled with a person? Well, we do have some idea of what that means, to be filled with a person, don't we? Your life can be filled with another person. E.g., maybe you're in love, and suddenly you are... This, that person seems to fill your life. You become hugely sensitive to what they love and what they hate, what they think, what they feel. You're de- you just desperately don't want to upset them. You want to do the things that they love and that pleases them. You're highly motivated. You listen to them. You want to know what they think. It doesn't have to be a romantic thing. When you make a new friend and suddenly they, they, you're filled with them or you re- someone you really connect with or, or maybe just a new kind of mentor figure in your life, and you're you're filled with their ideas and their views, and you listen to them and respond to them. As a Christian, it's your duty to be filled with this person, filled with the Spirit. You You must learn what he loves and what he hates, what he thinks, what he commands. You must be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Illustration, let me tell you about my grandma. Now, when I was a teenager... My grandma broke her leg, and she came to live with us for a few weeks. And I, let me tell you, grandma filled the house. Um, I, I, I know this is 40 years on, and I'm still trembling over the whole experience. But she, the grandma, she's lovely, but she, I can still picture her stretched out on the sofa for six weeks. She was there. And you, we had to adjust our lives. Certain things grieved grandma. Uh, clutter grieved grandma. Certain uh, noise after 8 p.m. grieved her. Certain things on the TV grieved grandma. Uh, and we could have thought, too bad grandma's our house. But, but you know, you honor your parents, you honor your grandparents. So we, we tried hard to, to, we didn't want to do the things that grieved her. Another side of it was we, had, we needed to listen to her. She was in our house, she was there and, and she had her views on the way we should be living our lives and the way us teenagers should be behaving and all the rest of it and uh, it still rings in my ears now but it was right to, to listen the, the, the Bible says there's, there's a place in, in the New Testament where it says do not grieve the Holy Spirit Ephesians 4 verse 13 do not grieve the Holy Spirit learn what pleases him learn what grieves him and don't do those things this person has come into your life 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19 says do not quench the Spirit and in the context of that verse, it's talking about preaching. Don't, quen- don't cover your ears. Don't ignore it or resist it or, or listen to it and then completely forget everything you heard and don't, don't do anything about it. What are you doing? You're quenching the Spirit. The Spirit is speaking to you. Don't ignore Him. Don't quench the Spirit. This person has come into your life. Pay attention. Be filled with this person, the Spirit of Christ. If you look at the command in Ephesians 5, verse 18, it's very helpful to notice the grammar. Sorry if you really hate English grammar and analysis. That takes you back to bad days at school. But 
just did a brief bit of grammar work on this phrase, be filled with the Spirit. Four things just to note, simple phrase, but the Greek grammar is very instructive. One, it's an imperative. That means it's a command. This isn't a suggestion, it's a command. Christians, you must be filled with the Spirit. Two, it's a plural. It's addressed to the whole Christian community. This isn't something for a small group of enthusiasts. This is commanded to all, which means it's available to all. All of you be filled with the Spirit. That's what happened at Pentecost. The Spirit didn't come down on this one and this one. Oh, I miss you out. I'm going to go to this one. No, all of them, the gathered church, were filled with the Spirit. Third, it's a present progressive, right? That means he's not commanding here a one-off, a one-off action. You see the same Greek word in John 2 verse 7 where Jesus says, fill those water jars with water. Do you remember that occasion when he's going to turn the water into wine? Fill those with water. But there is the aorist tense, meaning it's a one-off action. Fill them up, and then you're done. Don't fill, a present progressive would say, fill those jars ongoingly for the rest of your life. Go. No, it's not that, but here it is. It, it is this present progressive, a command to be filled ongoingly with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off event. It's a continual, ongoing experience. So you're being commanded to be filled All Christians are commanded to be filled, ongoingly be filled with the Spirit. Finally, number four, it's a passive verb. That means this is something that is done to you rather than something that you do. You're not being commanded to go and fill yourself, but to go and be filled. There's no technique or formula, no spiritual buttons. You press, down comes the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this. But you are commanded to let him do it. Not hinder him, not resist him, but put yourself in the way of this filling process. This verse can be translated, let the Holy Spirit be filling you. Hmm. Remember that the disciples on the day of Pentecost, they couldn't go and get filled with the Spirit. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. They had no control over it. But they put themselves in the way of it They prayed. They came together as the church and they sought God. They were pouring over the Bible. They came together in this united and constant prayer, waiting on God. They put the church in order. You read Acts chapter 1, they thought, well, how can we organize ourselves better? What what should we be doing? And they were reading the scriptures. And this is what we are to do. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. This is what it is to grow as a Christian. The Spirit makes the truth of Jesus shine more and more brightly and clearly who he is, what he says, what he loves, what he hates, what he thinks, what he feels. So you become filled with this wonderful person. Pray for this. Seek this. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China in the 19th century, he had a scrap of paper in his diary, uh, and it had recorded his daily prayer. This is what he prayed every day. Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seem, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. Lord Jesus, make yourself real to me. He was seeking to be filled with this person. We need to pray for this. Is there anything else you can do? Well, of course there is. He is the spirit of truth. He loves to make the truth shine to you, which means you need to be reading the word. 
listening to the word, singing the word, praying the word, getting the word in. Very fascinating thing to do is compare Ephesians 5, that chapter, with Colossians 3. They're two very parallel chapters in Paul's letters where he deals with exactly the same things in almost exactly the same order. And if you lay them side by side, you can think, oh, is he just photocopied one or the other? No, there's a change in expression at one particular point. Instead of saying, Ephesians 5 verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Almost the same thing. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You don't just know it, but it dwells in you richly. That you think of it, the, the word of God is like the fuel. It's like the wood. You put it on the fire, and you pray that the Spirit would come and set it ablaze. Lord, I'm reading this stuff. Please come and make it come alive. Sometimes I read it, and it's like, Lord, make it burn in my heart. Wonderful example in the Bible of this is Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, when uh, the risen Lord Jesus, he comes along and joins two of his disciples walking on this road. Now, they probably walked down that road with the physical Jesus a hundred times. But on this occasion, Jesus, he joins them, but he prevents them from recognizing him. You remember the story. And you think, why does he do that? He doesn't do that with any of the other resurrection appearances. What is going on? Well, this is what's going on. Jesus is teaching us through their experience, how are we going to walk with him after his resurrection? Because we don't see the physical Jesus either. You remember what happened is in Luke 24, and as they walk along, Jesus speaks to them, and and he he says to them uh, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He showed them himself in the Bible. They see his face on the page. And what is their experience? Verse 32, they say this, when Jesus had gone, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That is the experience of being filled with the Spirit. This, this is how we know now the presence of Jesus. The Spirit takes the truth and sets it on, on fire in our hearts. It blazes in our imagination. Our hearts burn within us. Jesus is magnified to our spiritual vision. You know what it is like to experience that in a sermon? There's this wonderful moment in sermons, isn't there, where it goes from you know, I'm getting knowledge passed on and things are explaining, and suddenly I find I'm worshipping. I'm seeing Jesus. I'm hearing his voice. He's drawing near. By his spirit, Jesus has been floodlit to my soul. I wonder what you pray for. Remember what Jesus Jesus talking about this in... in um, in Luke 11, I'll close pretty shortly with this, but Luke 11, verse 9 to 11, he's talking about praying. And he says this, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will God give you what? Your Father in heaven will give you the Holy Spirit. He's tell- it's an amazing passage when you think he's telling us to go and pray. Pray. God is so willing to answer prayers. Go and pray anything you like. Don't hold back. Ask for the moon. Go on. Ask for the Holy Spirit. And you're like, I wasn't going to ask for that. We don't even know what to ask for. We don't know what will do us the most good. We haven't a clue what we ought to be praying for. What would really transform our lives, individually and corporately. But the fact is always, when there ever has been a spiritual awakening in, 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 it has occurred in the church, it's always come after Christians start praying that God would come, that the Spirit would open their eyes to the truth, would revive their hearts, make them see Jesus. Do you feel that you know the truth, but you don't know him? You don't know the truth? We need to pray this, don't we? Pray that the Lord would send his Spirit to open our eyes. We need the Spirit to make the truth burn in our hearts. Go after it. I, I, I close by saying that some of you I know need this for the first time. This is the first work that the Spirit does in a person's heart. He, he, he's, he opens your eyes. You suddenly see the truth about yourself. You suddenly see the reality of sin and you're, you're under the judgment of God. Never thought of anything of that before, but suddenly the Holy Spirit says, it's true. And you suddenly see the truth about Jesus. You knew about the cross. You've heard all these things a thousand times, but suddenly you see what is happening on the cross, what he is doing on the cross for sinners. Is the, have, you, have you seen that? Is this the most important truth in your life, that Christ came to pay for your sin at Calvary? Go after that. Read the truth. Stare at the truth. Hear the truth. Go and pray. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to this because I'm not getting it. And go for it. Don't say, you know, in your own time, I don't mind. No, you go after it. You need him to come and shine the floodlight Jesus to your soul. Go and listen and talk to people who are ahead of you, who know him. You need the Holy Spirit to save you and make you like Jesus. We all need this the Holy Spirit to, to show us more of him. Let us pray together now. Our Lord Jesus, we are amazed at you. We love you. We worship you. But we also know that we don't feel that all the time. And we know that we can be dry and cold. We long, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make Jesus more and more apparent and real and imminent to us. And we would come to know the truth deeply and be affected by the truth. So that our lives are not characterized by fears and anxieties, worries, anger, sin. But rather we would have composure and poise and strength of of character in Christ because we know the truth not just intellectually but our hearts burn within us we would desire that spiritual heartburn that we read of in the scriptures we pray that we might be filled with the spirit that we would go after this that we would put ourselves in the way of this may we not be neglectful of the means of grace that you have given us may we not get out of the habit of meeting together May we support one another and encourage each other in this. Help us as we read your word. Help us to fling fuel on the fire 
And oh Lord, would you come and set it alight in our hearts. We pray this for ourselves individually and Lord as, as a church and as churches across this country. We pray these things. Lord, would you bless us with this. Forgive our cold hearts. Forgive our indifference, Lord. Oh, stir us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.